for October 24th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 173. Triumph, the insult comic dog of the will. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I am Matthew Rather, returned from my many weeks off. There have been some weeks off, and there will probably be more. Uh, <laughs> you rapscallion. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the voice of Peter Fenzel. My, I, you know, we should call you the co-host now, the, the other host of the Overthinking It podcast. Not, you know, I'd be happy to, to switch off more often, even, uh, because you do such a good job at it that you put me to shame, Pete. You put me to shame. Really. There's like a sloth element involved, too. <laughs> it's like when you open your playbill and you find that little slip of paper, and it's like, the part of Angel will be played tonight by Harvey Firesteam. And you're like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't There's be only us. There's only this. Forget Right. <laughs> can, can we can we can we all do the rest oh. of the podcast as Harvey Firestein, please? All right. The podcast this week is brought to you by the letter H for Harvey. Harvey. Harvey Firestein. Your mother would hear. Um. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> we should cash Harvey, Harvey that and start like over. What, if, if scientists were to make like an embarrassing stereotype super collider and just like smash them all together, like Harvey Firestein comes tumbling, smoking out. Um. <laughs> hey, don't we have a question of the week we should get to? <laughs> I just, no, I just want to sing the rest of the score of Rent as Harvey Firestein. <laughs> 525. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went there at the same time. Seasons of love. Would you light my candle? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. No, buckle down, everybody. We're doing a podcast. You see, this is what happens. This is why Peter's a much better host uh, than I am. And, uh, oh, our, our podcast tonight is brought to you by a sponsor. It's brought to you by you, who are going to sponsor us by doing something special. We've asked you for things in the past. We've asked you to donate by clicking on the PayPal link. We've asked you to rate the show on iTunes. And, hey, if you did any of those this week, I certainly wouldn't refuse you. But uh, we would like you this week to share this episode of the podcast with a friend. Share the podcast you love so much. Share, uh, uh, or no, or this podcast, depending on how you feel about us. Um, share, uh, share an episode of the Overthinking Podcast with a friend. Uh, you know, your favorite episode, this episode, uh, your, you know, musical, th- your favorite musical theater enthusiast who thinks that it's going to be a podcast about singing, you know, the scores of Broadway shows in the voice of Harvey Firestein. Um, Midnight, not a sound from the pavement. <laughs> Wow. Well, you've gone off book. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, the, uh, the Overthinking a Podcast makes a great mixtape for that girl you have a crush on. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, share, share it with a friend. We're trying to get the, podcast, the word of the podcast out to new people. I'm not exactly sure how we do it. And so we are turning to you, our, our loyal and awesome audience. And uh, in return for your kindness in sharing us with, uh, with your friends and loved ones, we will do your listener feedback tonight. But first, panel. Here is your question for this week. Uh, in honor of Lindsay Lohan and her community service in the, uh, uh, the morgue, the Los Angeles morgue, <laughs> uh, 
I know, right? Like that's uh, all good questions start that way. Um, what celebrity would you like to give community service to and what uh, public service task would you assign to that celebrity? Uh, first in the alphabet and first in all of our hearts, it's Peter Fenzel. Uh, you say that today, but the minute Belinky shows up, I'm going to get kicked to the curb for the next hot thing with a right. B at the beginning of his last name. <laughs> um, so I th- I'm a big fan of making people uh, put their money where their mouth is, kind of like put up or shut up, like show me, you know, what have you done for me lately? Other sorts of like pithy, provocative things that you say to them that are cliches. But basically making people live up to the expectations that they set up. So I would once and for all compel, nay demand, that Usher in fact ush. <laughs> um, I want to see him at like uh, community municipal Fourth of July fireworks celebrations, like helping old ladies with walkers get to the front row so that they can see the fireworks. I want to see him at like the the zoo, making sure that like the monkey house has like adequate uh, seating for like the rambunctious children near the back where they're not going to disturb anybody. I want to see him in the movie theater with a laser pointer, just like making sure everything's okay, making <laughs> sure it's planet- all right in the planetarium. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like, wait, uh, excuse me, is is the bathroom on the other side of the uh, of the concession stand? Yeah, yeah. It, da, 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 da. And then you jump into a split, and then Justin Bieber would sell a peanut M and M's to somebody. Yeah. It'd be great. They could be a tag team in little blazers. It would be awesome. <laughs> Excellent. That was, that was a pretty good Usher impression too, Pete. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do it professionally. It's, it's my now, other now. Job. Now do Harvey Firestein doing Usher. <laughs> Oh, you know you got it bad when you lost it. Is that him? I think they're sure. thinking about somebody else. <laughs> uh, might not be him. I'm going to get slammed for that one because Lord knows we have lots of R&B fans who listen to the podcast. <laughs> Feel free to step forward, all of you. Uh, let's get the smooth sounds rocking in the comment thread. As long as, especially if they involve insulting me for my inadequate knowledge of Usher's catalog on short notice. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Joshua McNeil. Right, so I had this idea and then realized just just five seconds ago that it's in fact the plot to the Joe Pesci film, The Super. Uh, but I want... Uh... <laughs> if I had a nickel for every time that happened yeah, to me. Who Seriously. hasn't that happened to, people? Seriously, 1991 was a great year for Joe Pesci. Um, the, uh, I want Donald Trump to have to live in a, uh, as a super in a really crappy apartment building for, uh, for an extended period of time. Um, just, just so he gets a, a good feel, and preferably one that has been like destroyed by a building that he has put up nearby, like in a neighborhood that is completely run down, but you know, overlooming it is his own name that he can stare up at in horror uh, as, <laughs> as he you know fights cockroaches. <laughs> so, so you want him in that like Willie Loman house that's surrounded by like the towering, looming skyscrapers where like it used to be pleasant before somebody made the whole place in the shadow of like steel and granite and all that. Exactly. Basically, I want to turn him into the old guy from Up. <laughs> yes, where the whole neighborhood got rezoned multifamily. Exactly, exactly. Josh, you say that just in that you want him to float away someplace far, right? <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, you know what his um, <laughs> you know what his tenants are going to say. We're not gonna pay. We're not gonna pay last year's rent. No one stop him. Just let him do the entire song. I thought you want Donald Trump to be the old man from Up because you want him to like fight crime with a talking dog or something. Last like year's rent. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he needs a he needs a to, to develop a weird sort of 
uh, you know, mutually dependent relationship with a campfire boy. Next year's rent. <laughs> rent, 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 rent. <laughs> that sound is going to haunt my nightmare. Hit it with the crank. <laughs> um, all right, Dave Schechner. Yo. What is, you you want to answer the question? Uh, Come on, booby. Uh, See, I, I was going to have Harvey Firestein record the automated voice uh, sound system at all of like the municipal offices. Uh, <laughs> Mind the, the gap. But the local clerk's office, press one. If you've got a problem with your fire hydrant, press two. <laughs> Did he do one of those in you know in New York City taxis? There, they used to play. I don't know if they still do because I haven't been there in a while. Uh, but they used to play a little recorded announcement at the beginning of your ride, uh, reminding you to buckle your seatbelt. And you know, various famous New Yorkers recorded them. Did he do one? Uh, I want to hope so. Yeah. yeah. Hi, this is Harvey Fire. Although surely the sound of my voice makes you pray for your own auto-vehicular accident caused death. Please, <laughs> just, please is, buckle up. Is it just me or does Schechner sound exactly like Mo? <laughs> 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 oh. It's called the Flaming Mo. Um, yeah, <laughs> I invented it. My name is Mo. You know, I want to say, like the, the other the other way I would have gone with this, we all seem to be doing this as some form of comeuppance to the um, to the celebrity. But nominally, these community services should also be a service to the community. So I would uh, I'd want to put Alan Alda candy striping at a hospital because, oh. like, if when I when I'm sick, I, I want Alan Alda there. You know, I want to be like, we can fix you. Sure, I used to pull bullets out of people in Korea all the time. Mm-hmm. He's such a sweet man, and I love his Scientific American Frontiers. Right. <laughs> I, I totally have, like, hanging out with Alan Alda fantasies now. Yeah. <laughs> I was at MIT for 10 years, not one Alan Alda spotting. So sad. Yeah, there's a special, uh, there's a special hidden room that you have to go through. <laughs> the, the Aldarium, as it were. Exactly, uh, exactly. The, the, only thing, the only thing that could lift my spirits now would be the sounds of Harvey Firestein singing hits of the late 90s Broadway. No, I wanna. Okay, so my, so mine. I I was concerned. <laughs> are, are we gonna interrupt Matt every second with uh, Harvey's Firestein voice? Someone, God, I, someone God, I hope so. Um, though I considered, though I considered selecting Pete Fenzel and making him teach uh, middle school uh, English composition, so that he could learn the uh, the difference between a gerund and a participle. Oh snap! <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, wow. oh, you're uh, doing- I don't know if I loved you time <laughs> and again. Thank him. Pull the trank. Take that guy down. I would. Uh, I, I what I really want to do though is um, I think something. It's high time that we do something about the Kenny G problem, and I think that that what we should do is, we should make Kenny G. Uh, Respond to noise complaints late at night, like when your neighbors have a party, you know, like when the four frat boys who live downstairs for you and your like trickle, triple decker three family house, like um, when they have a party that goes a little too late, the cop that responds to your to your noise complaint should be uh, Kenny G. Um, and I think that this this, uh, you know, I don't know, this would punish him in some way for what he's inflicted on all of us. Does he respond with oh, a yeah. saxophone, or does he just show up? <laughs> no, that would make the problem. That would make the problem worse. That would be adding injury to insult, right? I mean, or, you could probably well, clear out a frat party. 
You yeah. remember the Super Bowl commercial from this past year where Kenny G was the riot suppression specialist at a prison, right? Where he would like – they would whenever there was a riot at the luxury prison because all the fancy rich people weren't getting their, their pudding or whatever, he would like play his smooth saxophone over the PA system to calm them down. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty cool commercial oh. uh, campaign from Audi that had a whole bunch of different uh, tie-ins online and on TV and stuff. Um, like a luxury like – nowadays, I think it would probably play pretty well if they brought it back. It's a very one percenter versus 99 percenter as it were after <laughs> that zeitgeist um but yeah so they've definitely the other people have definitely thought that kenny g needs to be employed in this manner and i think that means that uh it needs to happen so maybe that's why maybe that's why it was in my head maybe i actually unintentionally stole it from um uh you know from the from- super bowl commercial i i didn't remember it though when i thought of uh last year's super bowl and and um or i guess this year's super bowl and last season's super bowl i should say and and uh and what? And uh, musicians, I kept thinking of Eminem. Oh. <laughs> right. Fair enough. With his Detroit stuff. is yeah. like all the Detroit stuff. Detroit. And also, like, didn't he do an energy drink that you never heard about again? Probably. Yeah. I think so. He was, like, claymation guy. The way I think of... of uh, <laughs> Uh, the way I think of Justin Timberlake taking a shot in the nads the year before uh, in the Super Bowl commercial. Remember that one? That was good. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So wait, has everyone answered the question yet? I'm losing track. What's yeah, going on no, here? No, we've, we've all done it. We've all done oh. it. Oh, great. That's good. We've accomplished something. We so shall a, give ourselves a break. A gerund <laughs> is a verbal noun, but a participle is a verbal adjective. That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a gerund often takes the possessive, too, Pete. What? Be careful with that. The gerund often takes the possessive in English, too. Be careful with that. Okay, well, fair enough. I think most nouns take the possessive at one point or another, right? Like, <laughs> Your handling of that is, uh, should be ginger. No, uh, uh, so, for example, a, a, a gerund taking the possessive would be like, Matt's harping is really bumming me out. You know? uh, ooh, yeah, if you were to take an absurd example of that, yeah. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> is, there, is there another kind? Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, listener feedback. <laughs> We're actually going to open the mailbag. This is what, I mean, this is how much we care. Um, All right, so Raleigh from Georgia, whose name, uh, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Raleigh writes, I just wanted to write and thank you for reading my letter on the podcast. Well, you're welcome, Raleigh. Uh, It was quite the honor, he continues. Georgia is one of those oft-overlooked countries, and I was rather pleasantly surprised to hear the direction of the conversation lean towards Medea rather than towards Stalin or (laughs) Georgia. That's like part of Russia, right? (laughs) <laughs> Thanks again, and I'm pleased to report more than ever, this uh, one laughing per- person in the Caucasus will be making a fool of himself by smiling on the streets for the foreseeable future. Um, you, you remember that Raleigh wrote in for the first time, I mispronounced his name like Rowley or something like that, R-A-U-G-H-L-E-Y, uh, Rowley. Um, and he, he reported that our podcast was making him laugh, and that's just not something that uh, is done in the former, so former Soviet Republic of Georgia. Um, <laughs> not done in public, anyway. Uh, my one criticism <laughs> is that, he says, though, through no fault of your own, you mispronounce my name. Granted, uh, it's just a bunch of silent letters in a row, but it's pronounced like Raleigh, like Raleigh, North Carolina, or Raw Lee, R-A-W-L-E-E, which, by the way, Raleigh, is the name of our X-rated After Hours par- podcast starring Mark Lee. Uh, raw Lee, <laughs> yep. uh, or however you prefer to transliterate. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you, uh, Raw Lee. You can tune into Raw Lee on the Overthinking It Network. Yeah, you know the fu- the full name of it is Raw Lee and the Research Triangle. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, hit Durham. He's a Durham mobile man. I don't even know. Anyone? Anyone what? want to say something more about Medea? 
Oh, um, just, you know, watch out for that golden fleece in that neck of the woods, too, right? <laughs> or that's on the north shore of the Caspian Sea. Um, yeah, I mean, we made a bunch of jokes about Tyler Perry, but I think it's also important to remember that um, Medea was a, a, a spurned woman. Well, you know, what, you know what's also true about Medea? Medea is one of those characters that every graduate student who writes anything and wants to talk about gender issues, like, writes something about, right? It's like all sorts of remakes of, like, classic female characters from literature. Like, Medea always gets thrown into the mix. I mean, that's an exaggeration. It's not always. But she's definitely one of those characters who feel like didn't have a home uh, in her original stories that was as good as the home that we might be able to find for her if we were to try to revisit her, right? Everyone's like, like everyone wants to put Ophelia in a story where she doesn't drown for no reason, right? Like everybody wants, like, oh, this character is so cool. We should like, we should have a care. We should have a play about Desdemona, which exists, right? We should have a play about, um, you know, the Butterfly McQueen character in Gone with the Wind should have her own book. Right, like which I think is the case as well. Um, you know what I'm talking about, like isn't characters. That like, isn't that the help or something like it? I don't know. Oh, the help is that what that is about? I don't. I mean, I don't know. I haven't <laughs> read the help. I probably am getting no. myself in trouble by saying that, that is not at all what the help is about. Gone, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, I don't know, but uh, but yeah, but Medea is definitely one of those characters who like catches people's attention, but people don't go back and tell the story of her. They like pull her out and try to get, make her do character monologues about like. Um, is there, is there a League of Extraordinary Women? Oh, you mean like a series of classical? I mean, other than the fact that the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has at least a couple women in it, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, I mean, it's, you, it's extraordinary it's, ladies. It's, no, I, come on, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, would you use a, a Y with women in order to like de, de like feminize it so that it's not as um, subaltern? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> wait, wait, if you, Matt, Matt and Peter, does the glorious ladies of wrestling count? <laughs> is that with like uh, oh gosh fabulous moolah is she in there um, let's let's say sure let's say I knew anything about that other than their existence fair enough fair enough the league of extraordinary ladies I think Medea should be in there if what you're looking for is women who don't give up their sort of uh, their their femininity in the sense of kind of uh, I guess the, what would you, how would you frame it how can you frame that sort of feminine energy without setting it in opposite in dialectical opposition to men gosh if I had the answer to that right like I'd have a million dollars and a bunch of ladies am I right guys no um, that's horrible uh, yeah <laughs> but, you know so Medea one of the things that makes Medea interesting is that she maintains the sort of she she still wants. Because Jason and Medea, right, is like the pairing, right? I'm not, I'm not getting yeah. that wrong. Like, so she, she wants Jason, but she hates Jason because Jason treated her very poorly, right, and like spurned her. Um, and well, there's ran, also and ran off, ran off with that, with that other hussy, right? With yeah, the, exactly. You know. But it's not just about Jason. Like, you get the sense that this is part of Medea's personality. Um, that, that Medea kind of is a is a person who is sort of vengeful and a person who has a lot of built up anger at people, right? Like, and uh, and not because it's not caused by anybody in particular. I don't think that Medea's like, oh, I was this innocent person and this guy came, right, and now I'm so hurt that I have to lash out at the world. It's more like Medea is this like imposing, powerful figure, and you don't want to mess with her because she's going to be messing with someone, and it's just a matter of who she's going to be messing with, right? And you happen to be the person who got in her way, and now she's going to mess with you, right? Because I think there's other side stories where she messes with other people. Uh, and, and so that's an important distinction, right? It's like she's not just getting de- vengeance on Jason. Like, this is sort of in her character to want to do these things, and it's not really part of uh, the, a lot of the you know discourse drink, a lot of the discourse drink around female characters that that's a quality that they have without being like psycho crazy you know 
be um, asterisk, 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 asterisk. I forgot to count. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like it, it's there's few women, female characters who maintain their dignity and their sense of social status while at the same time having vengeful qualities that aren't dependent upon anyone actually doing them wrong at first. Right? You know what I mean? Like, it's the sort of like, uh, oh, if I'm a strong woman, then I'm a, a bee. Right? I don't want to say this. I don't want to say it on the air because I get chili peppers if I do that. Um, and so, yeah, but it has to be in the context of some guy doing something wrong because his agency justifies it, right? But Medea isn't like that. And that's why you pull her out and that's why you put her into all these stories, right? Um, so, in order to find this sort of league of extraordinary women, I think you want to find women who similarly have a. Um, not inherent, but something that is, you know, in what you might interpret to be their nature to act in a way that is proactive and aggressive without um, diminishing the degree to which they might be sexual, desirable, socially active, um, well-liked, high status, right? Um, so you can't have them depend upon a dude for the things that they do, but they can mess with dudes because dudes tend to do bad things. Um, so, like, who else fits in that category? Does, does that does that clarify sort of queen, what I think? Queen, is cool about queen Elizabeth, maybe. Yeah, to, I mean, she's she was real. I mean, Medea, I guess, is also real to an extent, like as a folkloric character. Sure. Uh, um, so maybe there's well, an antecedent to that. We're about, yeah, 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 we're talking about different reels, but yeah, okay. Well, well I guess Queen well, Elizabeth. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the conceptualization of Queen Elizabeth simply yeah. extended beyond who the person herself was, right? Like, yeah. surely she did a lot of these things, but as a character, she's a sort of larger entity than the person ever really was. That's true. That's certainly well, that was true in her time, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because she was sort of the ubu ra, right? She was like the not not in the sense that she painted her face and acted like a puppet, not in the sense that she would like tear her advisors to pieces in fits of useless rage. Um, but uh, that's a deep cut. I don't want you to talk about ubu on the podcast. Um, as, wow. as, Matt is probably bored with all that sort of stuff. That's the stuff they trot out in like 101 as an example of weird theater. But yeah, I guess who else would be in um, Queen Latifah, right? Yeah, I'm doing that as my I'm doing that as my fifth. I'm doing ubu ra by Jari as my fifth. Yeah. Exactly. Because let's do theater no one wants to watch. <laughs> hey, what... <laughs> like, no joke, we're doing Elmer Rice's The Adding Machine this year. <laughs> uh, it's an Albrecht semester for Rad. <laughs> oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear. Uh, so yeah, like, her... Oh, show me the way to the next little girl. <laughs> oh, man. So we have to come back. It's funny gadget. on so many gadget. levels. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> gadget from the Rescue Rangers fits, right? And Pippi Longstocking and Medea. Well, I, think, and, uh, <laughs> I think Penny from um I think Penny from Inspector Gadget fits also, though I mean you can think of a lot of what she does as being sort of responsive to her father, sort of cleaning up after her father, right? Yeah, she necessarily subordinates herself to Inspector Gadget when really she should be the one with the job with the secret agency, like pretty clearly. Like she should be like, you should pay me to go fight Mad because I'm <laughs> does all the work. And they're like, it's child labor laws. We have to pay your father. And then he launders the money and pays you. Maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe yeah. Inspector Gadget is a front that uh, the government uses to pay Penny because if otherwise they can't work her more than like four hours a day. Right. It's, 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 it's an extended allegory for like the early years of Drew Barrymore, basically. <laughs> exactly. Drew Barrymore is a good example. She should be one of the League of Extraordinary Women. <laughs> We're really bad. She's extraordinary. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe like in later years, Penny got a, like a really bad drug problem and had to, you know, put her life together, right? Like around yeah. a sort of absent mother and unstable father figure. Well, because Gadget, Gadget wasn't her father. No, right. right. It's the Uncle her, Gadget, right? Yeah, yeah. Like her parents are sort of a you know a mystery. Yeah, where's mom and dad? Where's Penny's Brain. mom and dad? Brain. Is it possible that Doctor Claw is her father? 
Why not? Let's make it special. Yeah, there we go. Or three. I'm sorry. I have some fan fiction I need to write. Gentlemen, adieu. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on. uh, TFT Podcast Superfan Cat writes in. Oh, and by the way, I'm in in negotiation with Sheely's agents at William Morris Endeavor uh, for a new episode (laughs) of of the TFT Podcast. Uh, It's likely... Well, I, I, in fact, I don't want to say anything, anything about it. But uh, there will probably be a prolegomenon to any future TFT podcast that involves us making available certain scholarly articles that you read, and then and then discussing them on the podcast. Uh, because after all, that is that is a podcast where we alienate and confound uh, our loyal audience. Um, but uh, beyond that, I can't I can't say anything. I like how you could have said non-disclosure agreement, but instead you went with prolegomenon or whatever that word was. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the uh, it's the it's the prolegomena to any future effing teenagers is the, mm. will be the the title of that series of, of four or five podcasts where we you know uh, discuss um, you know uh, where Sheely Stokes and I discuss uh, articles by you know influential theorists in our respective fields. Anyway. Sweet. Uh, so, uh, uh, TFT superfan Kat writes in, oh, Kat was at the, uh, Overthinking It meetup in New York. She writes in, uh, musical episode, please. You made good on promise of a Disney week. Uh, so I'm sure a musical episode won't be far behind. Kat, you're welcome. <laughs> when you see a guy reach for stars in the sky, you can bet that he's, sorry, sorry. Yeah, poopy. <laughs> On uh, my own, pretending he's beside me. Oh, it's just wrong on so many levels. <laughs> All my life, uh, something, something, something. Let's just keep moving. No, uh, we could do a music. We could probably do a music. If we did, here's a question: If we were to do a musical episode, would you guys want to pre-write it or improvise it? Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Exactly. Like, um, I think that. I think that it would be better to pre-write it uh, along the lines of the commentary musical to Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. You know? Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Like, we could do, like, a musical over- overview of something. Like, we could do, like, a musical overview of a musical. Like, we could, like, do a commentary on a movie version of Les Miserables, like, where we sing songs about what we think about Les Miserables or something like that. Um, <laughs> Can it be like the four-hour Les Miserables from the '90s that was really dull? <laughs> I think so. I think that's and had no music in it, so we could just yeah. we could we could fix that. Yeah, the finally. film adaptation it, that has like yeah. Jeffrey Rush in it, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. There have been, exactly. been several like flavors of that, right? Where where famous stories are turned into musicals, and then like riding on the popularity of the musical, there's a non-musical version that's put out, which then bores everyone to tears. Like there's a Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, that uh, was like a made-for-TV movie in the '90s. I remember that was a big deal and it was just terrible. I mean, I did a show when I was in high, and I guess it was after I was in high school, I, I stage managed and did some side directing for a show that was a musical version of Truman Capote's novella, The Grass Harp. Wow. And The Grass Harp had been made into a musical uh, that had failed, and nobody really wanted to do it. And then it got made into an opera. And then the opera got made into a play, which got made into a musical again. 
So it was like there's like multiple different ways that it like got tried to be made into music. It was the most bizarre thing. It's it's a musical about um, a family, I believe, in Louisiana that has an, an, an that sells a sort of patent medicine that is their old fashioned kind of family recipe. And about two relatives, I believe they are sisters, one of whom is trying to sell out to like large business interests and like sell this patent medicine, which is supposed to cure dropsy, right? And, and as such, like sort of, uh, it's a story about like losing the family home and like the the sort of railroad tycoon character except this person is trying is like basically the coca-cola company trying to come in and like bottle this uh this and it's set up and it's set against the sexual awakening of a young boy as like as he discovers his father's <laughs> drunk before the was the was the musical called there will be tonic yeah <laughs> that would be a great and, and for which of these iterations were the were the action figures made yeah, yeah. where's the video game tie-in Every, yeah. every song ends with the root chord, right? And that's how, that's what there will be. There will be tonic is like. Oh, my suggestion, uh, my suggestion for the musical episode is um, waiting for Superman, the musical, huh. which I think uh, I think we could do a, a lot of good stuff with. There's a you there's a lot of about teaching about like the the sort of yeah about the decline of public education. Da, 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 da. No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just all that? Is it just all the fa- Superman fanfare from Superman the movie, like over and over again, while we watch Waiting for Superman? That would be grisly and awful. A grizzly Man, that would be great if we did a musical commentary track to the movie Grizzly Man. Um, be there's awesome. a, yeah, there's a cost benefit, you know, calculation <laughs> hey, that needs. Hey, to be he done didn't do the cost benefit calculation when he went to go live with the freaking bears. Okay, so we're not going to do one. We do a musical based on what happens to him when he goes to live with. <laughs> so do the do the bears serve as the chorus? <laughs> yeah, it's the chorus of bears, and they sing like rah rah, uh, and all the bears are played by Harvey Firestein. <laughs> See, it's funny on several who, levels. Who requires no makeup for the role? Oh. So I think we've explored this listener feedback pretty thoroughly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, or is it just like wanting to do a musical episode at some point? Yep. Andy from Jersey writes in, Hey, Overthinkers, I'm writing you from uh, 40.220601 North, 74.76781 West. Well, the ba- the Browns. Uh, that's, a, that's a Supermax facility, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it, if it wasn't before, it's super now. That's for sure. He's awesome. uh, super max. <laughs> <laughs> While perusing uh, the back catalog, I've noticed that Fenzel seems surprisingly hostile to the idea that people can overcome mind control when the emotional stakes are raised. The trope of a hero surpassing his or her previous limitations when the shit. Re- oh, I said the S word. Uh, chili peppers really hits the fan. Is hardly unusual. Uh, it never stops happening in Mr. Fenzel's own beloved Dragon Ball. <laughs> I believe he's characterized it as, quote, beating mind control because he wants to, period, end quote. When I see examples of this in pop culture, I don't assume it's an issue of want as much as an issue of will. And while the idea of mind control is pretty unrealistic, the idea that strong emotion can harden one's will as opposed to one's muscles is pretty easy to buy. After all, in what is probably the best known example of p- pop cultural mind control, Obi-Wan explains that the force can have a strong influence on the weak-minded. Love the articles in the podcast. Andy from Jersey. Pete. 
All right. So there's a couple things to address. Uh, the first thing I'll address is the Dragon Ball comment, which is like I would be an idiot if I were to claim that there aren't stupid things in Dragon Ball. There are lots of stupid things in Dragon Ball. It's full of stupid things. I mean, I love it. It's great, and I, I really enjoy the way it's put together and its sense of fun. Uh, it is important to remember that it is a comedy, and it is also a genre parody in a lot of ways. Um, so, for example, if you're talking about the most famous mind control instance in Dragon Ball, which is when, uh, <laughs> okay, here we go. So it's when Vegeta, the rival to the hero, voluntarily submits to the mind control of the sorcerer uh, Babidi in order to gain the strength, right, that he can use to fight the hero, right? And by doing so, uh, un- falls into Babidi's trap and unleashes the ancient primordial evil of Majin Buu, who then goes on to destroy most of the universe, right? And this is a big mistake that Vegeta makes because he's not supposed to do this. Uh, and the idea then is that, well, Vegeta is so strong that Babidi can't actually control him. And there's a, there's, a, there's a turning point where Vegeta tries to use the power that he gets from the mind control to kill Majin Buu uh, himself, right? Because he wants to prove that he's the strongest and he loses, now, um, and that's important, right? So in this particular Dragon Ball scenario, Vegeta is mind-controlled, but the mind-control doesn't really matter. Um, but the narrative function of the mind-control is to show the links that Vegeta is willing to go to to sabotage himself in order to try to, and to sabotage the things that he wants in order to achieve his idea of himself, right? Which was given to him as a young age because he's a prince and he has this sense of entitlement. And it's about senses of entitlement versus people who are more sort of humble and like kind of build their sense of themselves from the bottom up uh, and, and believe in themselves because they deserve to versus like start with the belief in yourself and then try to build up from there. And I think it's important that he loses the fight because it, he doesn't actually beat Babidi. Like his, his vanity, which fuels uh, the Majin, Majin Buu's release from his egg, and Majin Buu, like, he tries to, Majin Buu ends up basically killing Vegeta because Vegeta tries to kill himself to kill Majin Buu and, and fails, and he doesn't kill him and all this other stuff. So the idea is that Majin Buu's mind control, uh, Babidi's mind control over Vegeta is still ultimately successful because Vegeta ends up feeding uh, Babidi's strategy, uh, which of course is parodic. Uh, it's a big per- parody of previous Dragon Ball seasons, and it's a big parody of uh, uh, of ideas of superpower, right? And, and sort of a gluttony for power and, and uh, ideas of the self, right? So I'll, I'll put that aside. I'll say Dragon Ball does stupid things. I'm not a huge fan of even the mind control scenes in Dragon Ball, but that's an explanation for one of the more famous ones. Put that aside. Moving on. Uh, the Force. All right. So here's another bone to pick, and I'll put, to pitch this out to you guys. Um, Nowadays in particular, it is uh, sort of told to us that we are supposed to view Star Wars as a canonical franchise that has various hierarchies of information and knowledge and stretches across television and movies and comic books and real, you know, real books and Kindle books, which aren't real, but they want you to think they're real and all this other stuff. Um, but when you go back to, to Star Wars, the actual individual movie, and talk about it, I think it's really important to remember that when it was made, there was no other Star Wars. And some of the stuff that is in Star Wars, the movie, does not work when you extend it into other parts of the franchise, right? Like, um, and I think that the Jedi mind trick is a huge example of this. Um, in the original Star Wars, Obi-Wan Kenobi uses the Jedi mind trick to get past the stormtroopers. And in doing this, he sort of shows Luke an important lesson about kind of self-confidence and being special and, and kind of uh, the way that the universe has a plan for us, right? It's a sense that, like, the will of the universe wants us to be able to get past these people so and, and the force of life and all this stuff. So we'll be able to get past them. And then later on, it's like the question comes up, well, why doesn't Luke and, and Obi-Wan Kenobi just freaking mind control everybody? Right, like, why doesn't like Luke use his Jedi powers in Return of the Jedi to get 
past Jabba the Hutt, which he tries to do, and he fails. And this is where the whole idea of um, the Force not working against the strong-minded, because the Force having an impact on the weak-minded is different from it not having an impact on the strong-minded. But like Jabba the Hutt is like, oh, like I'm, a, I'm no weak-minded fool. Like You can't beat me with your special Force powers, which is basically just a way of saying, like, hey, that thing that you tried before, like in this movie, it's not going to work because it's absurd. You know, like, it's like, um, and I don't like this. I mean, the Jedi mind trick is cool in the first movie, but if you could try to practically consider the story and, and how these characters function, if everybody can Jedi mind trick anybody who's like below a certain level of like mental acuity and toughness this isn't a story that's interesting none of this stuff actually happened it's all fiction so like uh it's not really important what's real and what's not (laughs) so it's like so what is the purpose of having characters capable of doing this and i maintain that the the reason why it's there is for that one scene in the first movie and everywhere else where it happens it's a tribute to that scene and doesn't really accomplish anything that's new right like it doesn't really do anything good um which is why Star Wars isn't a story about mind control. Like mind control doesn't really play a huge part in Star Wars. The way that the dark As side takes to what, say, like, say like well, Kill Bill Part Two or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like diegetically, it's not a story about mind control, but uh, non-diegetically, it's controlled the thoughts of <laughs> countless um, you know, preteen boys for like thirty-five years now. Well, I think that's another that transition to another important thing because there's a difference. Yeah, yeah. Between this is this somebody. Is, yeah. yeah. Oh, I was going to say, like, my, my basic problem with the, um, with the, the listener's question is that it, it assumes that the character under mind control understands that he or she is under mind control, which is often quite the opposite. And, you know, when, when a person's mind is being controlled, they have no way of telling it from, from just their own discrete you know, thinking process, right? Right, right. I mean, I think that there's a big difference between a character who's being influenced in a way that's clearly metaphorical and a character where you go to the trouble to establish that there is a an effect on their cognition, right? That it's like we like your brain is under the domination of this like specific mechanism, right? And, and so when you're talking about the will, you're talking about something that's abstract. Um, and when you're, I mean, unless we're going to be Schopenhauer around here and we're going to like be all continental or whatever. I mean, that's not continental, but whatever. But we're going to talk about the will as if it's this actual thing and not like a metaphorical expression of certain cognitive faculties, right? Like, um, once will take- flows between us, it joins us all together. <laughs> But like once you take the mind control mechanism out of the highly metaphorical and you give it a reason to exist in the reality that you're talking about, um, then you just disregard it using a sort of metaphorical idea of the will and willpower. I think that it, that's what pisses me off because you've, you, you have to establish – because the brain doesn't work that way, right? Like, and, and there's this idea that the brain does work that way, right? That like um, – that you could – you know that I, I mean, you can't choose not to look through your eyes. I mean, I guess you can speak of that metaphorically, but really, your eyes are hooked up to your brain, right? Like, and that's the stuff that gets into your brain. Um, and like, the one that pisses me off the most is probably Spider-Man Two, where it's like I have a machine on my back that goes into my brain and like controls my thoughts, right? And and it's like, okay, well, if you really want to, like, the will doesn't seem to be in op- dialectical opposition to this machine. I mean, I guess you could say, well, it's a story about a human being versus a, a machine and like biology versus artifice and nature versus nurture but that's not what the story is about right well, I like, know. I mean, it, like the, the the mechanical arms are, are a symbol of his deep emotional scarring from the trauma that he's just experienced right like his will is no longer his own as it existed before this trauma because now it defines you know his entire worldview Mm-mm. And so you're thinking that the idea is that once you have that kind of trauma all you have to do is want really badly not to have it and it will go away 
Uh, no, my, my idea is that, that the fact that you will naturally want really badly not to have it will cause you to behave and respond to your environment in a fundamentally different way than you did prior to the trauma. Right. And I think that what this says is there are probably more interesting ways to resolve this problem with this character than to like make it a, a, a sort of Schopenhauerian question of the will. Right. And be like, well, do you want it badly enough? Yeah, but the will, the will is the heroic piece. The will for a lot of these characters is, you know, it's, you know, I, I've, I've been waiting for Belinky to do this film or this montage of just like the people, like the moment that it turns around. Right. Like. Be it a fight scene, be it a mind control scene, there's always like the one heroic moment where they just get their act together and like start fighting back. Right. Which I is mean, almost like this. It's like the Samson moment, right? Where he's like, you know what? F this. I'm bringing this place down. Like, I am strong enough that I don't have to worry about this subjugation that I've been put under anymore. And my hair has grown back when no one was watching. And now it's time to make things happen. Right? <laughs> like, this sort of like, kind of thing. And of course, I love expressions of the will in fiction. Maybe it's just a, a sort of. Um, hey. You're, you're a big fan of Triumph of the Will, for instance. Oh well, yeah. Triumph the, uh, was isn't Triumph the the comic insult dog? Right? Triumph the insult comic dog of the Will. Lost Lenin Riefenstahl film. <laughs> this is some pretty good Liebensrumpf for me to poop on. <laughs> I will poop all over it <laughs> broadly and be self sufficient economically while doing so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now that I've Godwind our podcast with a sock puppet. <laughs> um, uh, do, do we push on? Do we have we have more feedback? Right, we can the hits keep on coming. Right? Oh yeah, go on. Yeah. One, one more one more comment on Andy's email, which is that he says Fenzel seems surprisingly hostile to the idea that people can overcome mind control. And I just wonder how long he's been reading the site because I don't find that surprising at all. I think that's a rhetorical device that's trying to uh, re- talk about my hypocrisy. It's like it's surprising you would think this because you also think this. You're not actually surprised. Now, I understand the rhetorical device and I've used it many times myself and I submit to it. I am a huge hypocrite. I like things that I criticize all the time, right? Now, part of why we do this about pop culture is that it doesn't matter that much. Like, it doesn't really matter whether I criticize something that I love if it's something that doesn't, you know, that's sort of outside of the sort of politically important topics, right? Like, like a good example. It keeps us, it keeps us from doing it to our families. <laughs> that's true. Well, think about <laughs> Overthinking it has saved more marriages. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> <laughs> then what? <laughs> then wasabi, perhaps. Then wasabi. Then, <laughs> then gastric distress. Uh, we've, we've saved more marriages than flotillas of garbage. Well, I mean, think of it this way. There's a lot of political subjects where if you want to maintain a position on the subject and you want to advocate for that subject, it becomes very hard for you because of the way that political discourse works to meaningfully criticize that subject, right? And, and to acknowledge that everybody is a hypocrite to a degree because their things are multi-deterministic and and any sort of uh, simplistic act of supporting something or avowing something is going to have caveats to it and limits to it. So even if you're talking about public education, right, like you can go out there and you can say like, well, you know, there are some problems with the way – like a great example from public education and and I don't want to get too deep into it is like the idea that uh, because of union protections, there are public school teachers who need to be disciplined or fired and they don't get disciplined or fired quickly enough because the – administration that wants them 
disciplined or fired, uh, doesn't have a good negotiating relationship with the union, right? And the union protects these people because the union – and the idea is – the reason it exists is because the union doesn't trust the administration not to use a punishment mechanism to fire perfectly good teachers either for financial reasons or political reasons, right? But at the same time, this leads to people who have done bad things or are bad teachers not being disciplined or fired. This is a difficult problem, right? Because if you do give the administration uh, the power to fire anybody they want, it's been demonstrated that this will be very detrimental to the educational system because the, the civil power is responsible to all these factors that don't involve the actual profession of teaching, sure. right? But at the same time, if you protect people unconditionally in any profession, you know, you're going to encourage people to act out and, to, and it's going to be a problem with performance and management. Bodyguarding being the exception. What is? Bodyguarding. Bodyguarding, uh, where you uh, want to protect people unconditionally. Sorry, yes, that's, that's really that's really terrible. Um, Samurais and stuff. I, I just thought of Kevin Cosner, and I was like, I, I can't. And I'm like, man, I did not see that movie. I don't. Understand. <laughs> I will always love you. I will always. You know what I love about that is that by the tempo you chose, I knew that you were doing Firestein does the best little whorehouse in Texas version and not the Whitney Houston version. And that shows that you are a thinking man, sir. An overthinking man. Zing. <laughs> Zing, moving right along. Uh, we, got an, we got an SMS from the 510 area code. Uh, was so excited when the podcast opened with you saying you were going to discuss Drive. Never heard of the film. I thought you meant the excellent comic. Uh, sorry. Oh. You, can, you, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you can Google Drive the comic if you want to know more uh, about that. But we, we aim not to disappoint more than, you know, I don't know what, one person every week. Or, you know, more than like 80% of our audience at a time. Not counting our parents. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you a doctor? <laughs> um, Speak for yourself, man. My parents are super content. Mm-hmm. The, so, yeah. Uh, I thought you mean, when you talked about Drive, I thought you were going to mean the shaft, but instead you were talking yeah. about the movie. Because Drive shafts are some of my favorites. They're you all, everybody. All right. Here's another name I'm going to butcher. Uh, I think it's Rafao. Uh, R A F A L with the stroke. Uh, the stroke across it. Uh, Emil, who uh, is our listener from Poland, who is a, a big fan of the site, and I once called in to um, correct my pronunciation of the Polish delicacy, Bichone Gumki. May may uh, call in uh, Emil. I, I call upon you to uh, to correct my pronunciation. I think it's I think the stroked L is pronounced kind of like a W, so it's like Rafał. But uh, uh, writing from, uh, from Poland, uh, in this case, Krakow, uh, he says, Hi, guys. Um, I've been wondering recently whether the opus of Terry Pratchett is something that one of you would like to subject to more scrutiny. There is uh, a note on the site by Mr. Stokes, but anything aside from that? Or is that like with Monty Python, a piece of popular culture that actually deserves an overthought level of scrutiny? And now, to reverse the order... Uh, of the message title of the subject line of his email. I wanted to say that the work you do on the site and the podcast in dissecting popular culture has, for me at least, the effect of making that very culture seem as if it deserved the level of scrutiny you subjected to. What say you to that? Uh, This time from 50 degrees, 1 minute, 18 seconds north, 19 degrees, 55 minutes, 289 seconds east. That can't be right. Uh... You can't yeah, have 289 a, seconds, right? It's a divide by error there. Yeah. Uh, Stack we, overflow. 
<laughs> best, uh, which is, but I, I, uh, I Google Maps it. It's in, it's in Krakow. Uh, best wishes, Rafao. And uh, tell me if I got your, tell me if I got your um, name right. You know, I was thinking of this. I, I was thinking about <laughs> Oh, you know what I just thought? Release the Krakow. Krakow. It's like the best onomatopoeic city ever. Um, so, uh... Krakow. I, I was thinking of something that we did on the, uh, the three-year anniversary, which was uh, uh, Mark sprung on us the, the uh, question, what does it mean to you to be um, an overthinker. And I, I was thinking about that more in the kind of weeks that we've had. And something that Pete said last week reminded me, I think to be an overthinker is to, is to kind of refuse to be demeaned by the things you like, you know, mm-hmm. that is to say, um, I, I, I like the things I like and I'm, I like to enjoy them the way I like to enjoy them. And I am not going to sort of be submissive to a discourse drink uh that that tells me that either i should be enjoying the things i like differently or else that my enjoyment of those things somehow uh makes me uh makes me less than because they happen to be you know the the sublime television show gossip girl and not you know i don't know paintings by van gogh or something like that right like uh i i um I, I refuse. I sort of refuse. I sort of refuse to give in, and so the um, there, there's a note of defiance, right? Or there's a note of kind of being. I, I mean, I don't mean to like. I, I don't mean to cheapen actual defiance, actual political defiance, right? <laughs> I like or the movie for that matter, <laughs> which is a fine movie, <laughs> fine film defiance <laughs> by um, by by comparing the two things. Mm-hmm. But there's always something. Uh, there's always something that is just a little bit. Um, uh, that is just a little bit bristling is sort of in where we sort of bristle at the idea that we should not be doing this. Um, that is over overthinking. It is always already sort of uh, defiant. I, you know, and so I think that that can, um, there, there's a sense in which like, like the critic can, can sort of make the art right. That, uh, uh, you know, I don't know that that the the sort of practitioners of something and the critics of it, the commentators on it, sort of evolve symbiotically together, mm-hmm. and that a lot of arts are kind of minor arts until uh, elucidations um, of them observe. And I'm thinking like I'm thinking of like the rise of Eliot and Pound and the new criticism in the 20s or something like that, right? Like that that this is just like what the hell is this guy doing randomly inserting it's it's nonsense until a a kind of um explanatory framework mm-hmm. uh evolves around it but but kind of paradoxically the the explanatory framework can sort of ennoble the thing uh that you thought was gibberish to begin with and suddenly mm-hmm. everyone is trying to read finnegan's wake and let me yeah, tell yeah. you don't bother Reading yeah. Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, Snape, Snape kills Dumbledore in the end. <laughs> I mean, let's just uh, to, this just to think. This isn't really a totally strange subject to a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. A, a good example of another way that this mechanism works is uh, post Legend of Zelda video games. Sure, right? Legend of Zelda is a great example of this, where it's like the video game coexists in a world in which there is a walkthrough for it, or like a Nintendo Power for it, right? Like there, like there's video games that it's pretty silly to think that somebody would try to play it without ever talking to anybody else who ever played it and and like it's it's uh, or being part of a community that plays it like the video games aren't meant to exist outside of the 
people that play them and the people that comment on them and the resources that the players have for learning how to play them and get better at them. I mean, any uh, fighting game, for example, with a robust balance development uh, that goes through or any, like uh, where the, they, somebody have to test and see, okay, if we get high-level players who play this video game every day for six months or years, right, we want to make sure that the different characters see commensurate amounts of play in this future, right? And thus, we are going to design and develop the characters with an eye towards that sort of long-term balance. This is a, an art that exists in cooperation with its criticism uh, and the, the experience of the readers that are ex- experiencing it, if you want to sort of transfer it into a text, right? It's the same phenomenon. And so I think people hear this phenomenon being described for something like poetry, and they're like, okay, you're just talking nonsense. This is a book, and a book says what it says, right? And, and But I think if you take it out of that context and you put it into the context of a video game, it's like, no, like, the video game means something different depending upon who's playing it, sure. right? And that's really what it means for books, too, and, and that when the writer yeah, is yeah, writing right. it. I mean, I was thinking, like, the book says what it says. That, deme- that depends what you mean by, like, book says uh, and it, and also, yeah, and also the that. second, and also the second says is actually mm. different than the first says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, the what the what though is fixed in stone. That that, that is definitely. <laughs> At this is the point where people start saying that you should have gotten an engineering degree and that you should hurry up with latte. <laughs> you know, it's like I don't value your kind of knowledge. <laughs> like this is silliness. This is the um, point when this is the point when you run into uh, uh, Mrs. Schechner in a diner, right? And she uh, waves a dollar as bill as she is oft found. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she waves a dollar bill in your face as she did to me once, finding out that I was getting an English degree and says, "But what are you gonna do for this?" Well, you have to understand that, like, like she, she both talks the talk and waddles the waddle. Uh, you know, she, uh, she has a library science master's degree, Matt. I mean, that's that's applied knowledge. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to say the, the same thing can be said for for paintings. Yeah, right? God, for they don't call it library art, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. It's not interpretive library dance. You know, it's not it's not the Dewey how do you feel today system. <laughs> Those are hard and fast decimals, goddammit. Um yeah, like any 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 art form is subjective. And, and I've always thought that anything that you could apply subjective reasoning to could be then qualified as art. Huh. I mean, if if you want to say that art requires the you know, the experience of of people, I mean that's that's not a terrible way of looking at it. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you'd almost define like you know this is of course one of the fundamental debates um, you know in the history of of human debating and everyone drink discourse like what defines art. Um, but I'd say like the the ability to uh, elicit an emotional and if possible you know intellectual conversive response amongst its viewers or yeah, is I mean, a defining like, characteristic. I mean, what Pete is suggesting are are you suggesting that like art is that which you know fails to have meaning outside people's experience of it? No, as, no, as opposed I, I, to sort of science as opposed to science, which we think of having kind of independent verifiability. I mean, I think you have to take the word meaning out of that because it adds too much baggage, but I think... (laughs) It adds too much meaning. (laughs) Well, because it's just question-begging. If you're like, that which has meaning outside of the uh, subjective experience of it, well, how do you have meaning without subjective experience? All of a sudden, you've just, like written yourself into a little bit of a, of a hole there sure. right because so um but something similar i mean i'm just saying that could yeah yeah be a right way. it's true and then at that point it's turtles all the way down but like okay yeah. but could you reformulate i mean could you reformulate what i said in a way that that leads us not into temptation yeah sure you could have like an, an existential <laughs> or expressionistic idea of art where it sort of requires a, you know a dasein as it were or a dasein or however you pronounce it where, where it's like oh you know the difference between something that is art and something that and you could that's a huge wide net right for what art is but it's some it's sort of something that is something experienced uh 
Um, hey, you're saying if, uh, if like a, an oil painting of water lilies spontaneously self-assembles in the middle of the woods and there's no one there to go, I don't know, what does it mean to you? Then is it really, is it really art? Exactly, because art has to do with the fact that somebody at some point uh, experiences it and that relationship with it is art. Which you can then say, like, well, is a, is a galaxy art, right? Well, is a picture of galaxy art? Like, that sort of thing, right? And, and these are the kind of questions that that kind of formulation would seek to, well, sure. I to mean, figure and, out. And, of course, a picture of a galaxy is art because when they come in off the radio telescopes and whatnot, um, yeah. they're all black and white, you know what I mean? And so they're colored yeah. in. Yeah, they're, those are false color pictures. That is to say, like, that is to say aesthetic decisions are made somewhere, yeah. al- somewhere along the way, and that has to do with... You know, with communicating something to an audience, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether it's, you know, funding for NASA or, right? Like, uh, yeah. whatever. Well, and there's also, I mean, there's a, a heavy dose of how can we best convey this this concept to the readership, you know, when you're crafting scientific illustration as well. I mean, there's, there's of course, everyone wants to make a beautiful image, but, you know, the core requirement is that it, it, it succinctly conveys the thought that you're trying to convey. Yeah. And so, like, uh-huh. it can sort of unintentionally end up being, I guess scientific imagery can be found art in a way, but, mm. like, I feel like the design philosophy, the design philosophy might actually be fundamentally opposed to one another. Like, in science, you're trying to make a discrete single interpretation, which is not open for discussion, uh, right. and convey that idea to everyone who's viewing it. But to, to what degree is that an aspiration, right? Like, that might be something that we're, try, that we're trying to yeah, do. Exactly. And then it's the completely impossible. Might, right? Yeah, they submit to their artistic impulse while they're doing that, because deep down they also want it to look nice, even though that's not really what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, I think about graphs that have, like, huge jumps in their axes that are really trying to make a point, right? Or that like don't label their dual axes and things like that. Where it really yeah, you I want mean, you've seen that on a yeah, like, yeah. on a PowerPoint presentation, right? Like our revenue has has shot up and and you know it goes from like fifty to a hundred thousand, but it you know I don't know, but the the scale starts at forty five thousand, so it looks like it's quintupled or something. Yeah, right, that's, right. that's not data. That's just that's an artistic expression. That's like an expository argument. It's it's you know it's not the same as just sort of presenting the the numbers. Well, it's, it's, it's data. It's just data that uh, has been relaxed through a very extensive massaging. <laughs> exactly. Right? It you was know, ten- I would love to watch that and read that fan fiction. That <laughs> fan fiction of data being finally relaxed through a very <laughs> Data massaging. <laughs> yeah, that's we're in, we're in chili pepper zone right there. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, by the way, another definition of art is something where if you hang it on your wall um, and you turn on a black light, like people think you're awesome, and or yeah. you get you get action. And if you don't do that, like so, picture galaxy counts, water lilies counts. If it's got the black mm-hmm. lights, oh man, so sensitive. By the way, speaking of which, fun experiment for people at home. Speaking of black lights, hang a bottle of tonic water on your uh, your wall and, and shine a black light on it. Turns out that quinine glows in the dark under really? UV. Yeah, dude, everybody needs to do this. This is awesome. That's yeah. great. Oh, yeah. And you'll be fighting malaria. (laughs) By the way, the freaking malaria vaccine, you guys hear about this? Isn't that awesome? No. I did not. (laughs) (laughs) That's just embarrassing. Okay, no, no. So so, it came out of 20, they've been working on it for 25 years. And I believe it just came out of a large human trial successfully. And they're aiming for a release in like 2012. It's not a full on vaccine, it's got a much lower. 
kind of therapeutic threshold than what a, a vaccine would normally be at before they released it. I think that has an efficacy of about 50-50, right, in terms of giving it to people who then don't contract malaria. But even 50-50 with malaria is huge. And there's other vaccines that are in development. Uh, I mean, this guy labored yeah. at this thing forever, right? And there's just no money in it because the only people who would be able to pay for it live in places where they can afford to dredge swamps, right? Yeah. And so there are no mosquitoes. Uh, I mean, there are mosquitoes, but there aren't huge hordes of malaria-infected mosquitoes that eat, you know, bite people five or six times a day. Um, so, yeah, so there's the possibility of millions of lives being saved, you know, hundreds of thousands of children, you know, every year not being, you know, bitten by these awful things. So, I, I mean, that was the – I felt like that was the big news of last week that I was really excited about was this. Now, I'm sure that there's some reason why I shouldn't care about it, and really it's like a whole big crock. But I was really excited to hear about this malaria vaccine. I, actually, I was sort of distracted from the malaria vaccine because of – and I would see that this might not have made it out into the sort of popular coverage, but it's very promising work on a transgenic treatment for HIV, too, which is very, Ooh. very cool. See, it's basically It's totally science fiction because they, they take uh, a bunch of white blood cells out from an HIV-positive person apply basically a genetic manipulation to them which pops the HIV genomes and one of the um, one of like the crucial proteins that's required for the infection just like removes the DNA from those cells and then injects them back into the uh, the recipient so you just like take their cells out pop out the bad part plop them back in everybody's fine it's you're crazy. basically saying you can cure AIDS with a game genie yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Where it's like, I want a super jump, so I'm going to change the code. Um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. It's, I mean, it's cool that they're able to do that because maybe that would lead to either um, cooler things that you can uh, – ways that you could actually fight AIDS or cooler things you can do by pulling cells out of people and injecting them with things. But like we could, And also, if you were yeah, to take – Infinite ammo, for instance. Exactly. Infinite ammo. Uh, you know, could, if you took all those – so if you take the white blood cells out of somebody's bloodstream, you inject them with genetic material from the HIV virus, um, and then you, you grow them in a, in a culture, and you put them on your wall, and you turn a black light. Uh-huh. Is that uh-huh. art? <laughs> I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, it's it's art and a war crime. Oh, real good. You know, I, so I must have missed a step and accidentally created a horrible <laughs> mutated AIDS virus. There, there's, right. that, there's that one that sits in the Venn diagram of art and war crimes. That's the intersection. Hey, uh, Josh, you want to say anything about Terry Pratchett? Oh, was the question about Terry Pratchett? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's when, when are we going to get some Terry Pratchett on overthinking it? Yeah, honestly, like I feel like Terry Pratchett is overthinking it. I feel like that's what he does. Um, I just finished his new one um, yesterday, and it's, you know, the man just, he, he, he dissects genre and story better than uh, I think certainly I could, and all but one of the other overthinkers could. So uh, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that there's a lot to do. I've looked for a way to do it, because I really do think he's, I think he's brilliant. I think he does, he's done some amazing stuff, but... Um, no, if, if you're into overthinking, I would suggest reading him. Uh, and if you have ideas for overthinking him, I would certainly love to do it. But uh, I got nothing, and I've stared at that wall a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to work on that then. Um, so we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll figure out some Terry Pratchett stuff that we can do. Mm-hmm. I think we could, we could probably go back and look at some of the stuff he wrote when he was like 20. We could probably mm-hmm. dissect that pretty well. Yeah. Well, I, and, yeah. I mean, I suppose that, like, in order to overthink something, the meaning has it has to sort of superficially resist overthinking, right? The meaning has to be hidden um, a little bit, and that, no, and, that uh, and, and that you apply kind of uh, you apply standards of analysis from outside the discourse that the thing purports to to be in, right? Right. 
but that's like the whole nature of his Discworld series is to bring in um, to sort of run genres and stories through this his lens of the Discworld, which is his way of overthinking them and really picking them apart and sort of having fun with the the various you know tropes and things. And it's just, I mean, we, the the best I could do, and I've actually tried to write something was sort of just like listing what he had done uh, and it was a really uninteresting article you know what you could do you could take like 10 contemporary issues and spin them through discworld like put them through the discworld machine and see how they crap out right like if discworld is, is a tool that he uses for social criticism and for extracting meaning from situations like take take like the herman cain 999 plan and like go what would it be like on discworld and how would it work out um i mean i don't know i don't i don't i don't I haven't read discworld so i don't know whether that would actually work or not but maybe that's that's an idea. That is an idea. And yeah, Pete, you should you should get into it. I think you'd really oh, like great. it. Okay, that's fantastic. I, I should write it. And I was like, I haven't read the thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, although I'm being very generous with yours, so we're all helping each other. It's great. <laughs> oh, uh, moving on. Natasha from Texas. Dear Overthinkers, I found your podcast a week ago, and you have saved my sanity. Living Yay. in Texas, where I have to drive half an hour to get anywhere. I have a particularly boring drive to my theater that I make at least three times a week. Um, last week before I found overthinking, I was going bananas because I was sick of listening to music. Talk radio had gotten uh, boring, etc. Overthinking, it saved me. And since then, I have been going back and listening to all the old episodes. My question for you, Hunger Games or Battle Royale? Uh, and do you all think that Hunger Games ripped off Battle Royale? As some say it did. Thanks for putting on a great show. Yours, being outside of your normal demographic and under 20, college female. Haha, Natasha from Texas. Natasha, excellent. <laughs> Broaden our demographic more. Tell your friends about our show. Yeah. That's is she our, our demographic she, is she our first Texan? <laughs> Sorry? Is she our first Texan? Amanda Marcotte uh, was living in Austin when, the first time she was on yeah. the show. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. but the rest of Texas will tell you that Austin is not in Texas. <laughs> it's where my parents went to, to college and graduate school, hook them horns. Um, yeah, so um, the best answer to this that we found, we've all seen Battle Royale. We, uh, we watched it in college on a pirated VCD that Belinky got from Japan off of eBay. Yes. Uh, back this was during Belinky's eBay addiction phase where he got those 32 copies of McDonald's yeah. Legend of Grimace Island, right? <laughs> yeah. Which, which heavily overlapped with his uh, addiction to Japanese VCDs. Yes, this is very true. This is very true. I believe he still has an eBay reminder up for Grimace costume that ever shows up on eBay. <laughs> anyway. says, I, I too have that. Like one, one year at his birthday, I'm going to be like the greatest friend ever. <laughs> um, Why? Just because you outbid him for the Grimace <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm, I'm going to let him get up to the like 500 mark and then have him win. <laughs> we did like a, a web installation. Blinky and I did, a, and oh, and Pete was involved also, and maybe some other people did a web installation once where we uh, we posited that Grimace was was um, challenging Mayor McCheese for the mayorship of McDonald Land, and so we created nasty political ads uh, about <laughs> Gr- Grimace and Mayor McCheese. I, I think you can find them on Blinky's YouTube page if you search for 40 inspirational speeches uh go through to his channel uh, i think you can find the old grimace uh ad is, uh, is mickelection.com not up anymore that, no, that was the it site is, that it, it was... is and it's it seemed oh, like uh no one was coming to it and it was costing yeah. more to maintain than you know. 
to be far to be fair, my participation I believe is on the cutting room floor. Um, I I did the old chestnut where I recorded a couple drafts and they weren't exactly what Blinky wanted, and I and I needed to re-record, and uh, I never actually did it. And so I believe that all my parts were re-recorded by Schechner. So I don't, with all due respect, as much as I tried to pitch in and help, I don't think I'm part of the final product as much uh, as Steve is. I think Blinky's voice is on a couple of them because I remember being shocked at how effective he is at like creepy campaign over uh, voiceovers. <laughs> And I used to make political ads, so I was kind of like, I can use that. No, <laughs> I did the VO. I did the main, a lot of the main. Was it you? VO All right. Like, yeah. you know, Mayor McCheese says he's time for the, the, the this or that. And the, anyway. I'm time for the this or that. Yeah, and it's, it's true. It's, it's, uh, it's YouTube.com slash user slash Mbalinky. And if you click into all of his uploads, you can see the Mick election spots. They're pretty good. Um, yeah, they're-, they're pretty funny, and uh, oh, you know some of the greatest some of the greatest hits um, over uh, over the years. So, oh, so the best answer to this, we all watched Hunger Games. The best answer to this comes from um, uh, Stokes, who when I I put this to the overthinking at writers on our email list, uh, Stokes wrote back, Hunger Games so transparently copies Battle Royale that it doesn't even it doesn't even count. It doesn't even matter anymore. It's uh, to say that that is bad that Hunger Games uh, copies Battle Royale is like complaining that Mortal Kombat rips off Street Fighter. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. It's like this is a great idea. I want to do it too. Not be- like I'll do it in my own way. But I was thinking about this also. Uh, when I was walking to the grocery store, it doesn't really matter why. Um, are there, is there a quality that an idea has uh, that reflects how many times you can do it without it feeling like it's been thoroughly explored? Right. Like, I feel like there's room in the whole battle royale conceit, which is, for those of you who aren't familiar, of like children being brought to a place and being forced to fight each other to the death. Right. Like, that's sort of what this is about. Right. I haven't read Hunger Games, but I think that's what we're. It's not really a metaphor for like third grade, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a metaphor for a lot of things. Battle Royale is a yeah. metaphor for the, the, the social problems. It's like a, it's a conservative fear piece about the social problems in the Japanese educational system at that time, right? Because people were worried about the breakdown of discipline of children, right? And so, like, this idea of these, like, sort of assassin kids who are really re- reckless and dangerous, even though they looked like normal kids, like, I think it's a sort of a Red Dawn kind of piece where it, like, plays off cultural fears at the time, which are kind of unreasonable. Um, but yeah, but it's a metaphor for a lot of things. That's why it sort of caught on is because, you know, kids are other than adults the most dangerous uh creatures on the planet so um yeah pretty much uh but yeah but i think that there's room for there to be two different hunger games like there's room for like a bazillion boy wizard stories right there's room for like five different franchises of movies where vampires and werewolves fight each other and then we start running out of gas right like there's room for is there like a quotient there is there like a what do you what would you call it (laughs) I mean, I want to call it like the Beckinsale quotient because I love bringing up how she did so many movies where vampires and werewolves fight each other. But um, I don't know if there's another name for it for like the amount of different explorations that a certain topic can 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 tolerate. Like the the team Jacobian constant. <laughs> the team J- uh, That's a pretty. That's that's like the team Jacobian constant is like. Uh, um, I'm not. I'm not sure that that's not already a mathematical principle. Yeah, it, it's like, like the degree of cooling, like in terms of E, wherein one must mm-hmm. put one's shirt on, like regardless of the, or wherein wherein it is crazy to not uh, thoroughly vain <laughs> to continue to insist to have one's shirt off. It, it's right? it's a way it's of like, triangulating a matrix uh, using ripped abs. Yeah. <laughs> exact, precisely. <laughs> oh man, that Bella, she had such a hard choice to make between those two dreamboats. 
Hunger Games, right. It's a book, right, about hungry people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad that the Hunger Games don't involve hippos. I'll say that much. <laughs> I mean, I haven't read them, so for all I know, the latest book is all about hippos. Uh, hungry hippos, in fact. Hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, they're genetically modified. To, never mind. You should read yeah. Hunger Games, Peter. I think, I think you'd have a lot to say about it. Is it like the Kite Runner? Because people read that on the subway too. <laughs> Why did I even say that? That didn't mean anything. Oh man, getting angry for no reason. That's uh, is, that's at the heart of overthinking it. I think, right? Yeah, that's true. so. It's by it's by Jackie Collins, right? <laughs> it's Daniel Steele, magnum opus. This says that the cover art was done by Tim O'Brien, which is insane. No, it's not the same Tim O'Brien. Never mind. <laughs> I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it right now. The Tim O'Brien, author of The Things They Carried and The Lick of the Woods, did probably not do the cover art for The Hunger Games. For the Hunger Games. Right. Yeah. Uh, though The Things That Katniss Carries is a, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a bow with which she shoots with astonishing accuracy. <laughs> Well, uh, all right. That is our uh, that is our uh, bunch of listener feedback for you. Uh, see, we do care about you. We do we do this at least once a year. Um, if you'd like to join the conversation, if you uh, have anything to, to say about anything we said, you can email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com or you can call or text. You'll notice we read a text. You can call or text two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Join the discussion with other listeners, uh, other overthinkers like yourself. No matter where you are, whether it's Texas or Poland or Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, not the Southern American state. Uh, we won't take those calls. Yeah, yeah they're, they're dead to us. You know what you did, Georgia. 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 The song of you. Sweet mellow rain. Um, the... Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, join, join the conversation uh, in the comments on the show notes to this uh, podcast. We will be back next week with another podcast. That's a that's a, a pledge, not a threat. Uh, and I promise, Harvey Firestein won't uh, won't appear. And uh, whoa, until next whoa, week, whoa. don't make that promise, <laughs> yes, man. It's true. Don't write checks your butt can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and until next week, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. Harvey. It Guys, who is Harvey Firestein? <laughs> <laughs>
We can release it separately and charge people money for it. Yeah, that's like rent the big bucks. I feel like I'm on one episode of Murder She Wrote from 1992. I feel like it's time for the the Harvey Firestein, like Betty White esque uh, grassroots movement to make him like part of the national conversation again. I feel like the time is ripe, and like I, I, you know, we all just sort of enjoy it when he's on screen more than when he's not. That's true. So, guys, I just now IMDb'd him, and through some means, I searched for him. I clicked on his name, but instead got director Lou Vockel, director of <laughs> Hookers in a Haunted House and Planet of the Erotic Ape. So, uh, Harvey, <laughs> Planet of the Erotic Apes. F I E R S T E I N. It's it's like Fierstein. No, yeah. I get that, but uh, but still. How did I get to uh, Planet of the Haunted Apes? Yeah, it's it's kind of erotic apes. Clear to me. Um, Obviously, uh, obviously, uh, we are not safe men. So you may have to cull the conqueror from among the horde. Oh God! uh, 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 Independence Day when Elmo saves Christmas. Mulan two. Food fight! Is the sissy duckling still hanging out in your duplex? <laughs> Until the harvest. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, ABC, the- ABC after school special. Planet of the Erotic Apes? They're not even trying there. <laughs> <laughs> Planet of the Gapes? Planet of the Rape? It, it right. writes itself. And scene. <laughs>